I should just note that I think that was our first round of applause for the announcements. So, well done, Becca. Well, I don't know if you guys have any memory or knowledge of a book called Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. Has anyone ever read that book or done one of those studies? It's an old book. It came out in the 90s. I remember doing it when I was in high school, um, which had been out a little while by then. That young. I'm really still that young. It's great. Um, Henry Blackaby wrote a book about his understanding of how we were able to experience the presence of God in our lives, of how we were able to uh, to know the will of God and to hear from Him and follow His lead. And basically, his, his book had, uh, I mean, he sold millions of these things, I mean, and they're still, they're still selling today. I mean, I've, I've gone to conferences in the last few years and seen his books on display, Experiencing God, his workbooks, his videos, all these things, and millions of people's lives were impacted by this. But it had a basic premise. The basic premise was this, that God is always at work, that God is always active, right? And that our job really isn't, our responsibility is not to figure out everything that we're supposed to do in life. Our job is to watch and see what God is doing, and whatever he's doing, we join him in it. And as a premise, I think it's pretty good. Uh, it's not the be-all, end-all of, of experiencing the Lord or anything like that, but it was a really simple concept that for me, as a high school student, I was able to understand and begin to apply in my life. And again, his out working out of that is a little more involved. There's a process that he talks about. There's seven steps and all these things. But basically, the call of the book was for us to become better attention payers. He says, he's basically telling us, I want you to pay attention to what God is doing. And when you pay attention, it will change your life. Now, again, I think that's actually true. And I think that what Advent does, more than anything, is Advent is an invitation to us to pay attention. It's an invitation to us to say, we're going to keep ourselves alert, as we read, uh, as, as uh, Howard read for us from that passage in Mark. You know, stay alert, stay awake, because we don't know when Jesus is coming back. And when we look back at the story of Jesus coming the first time, and we look ahead to him coming again, we don't want to have the same response that, that was had the first time when Jesus came. We want to have a different response when Jesus comes the second time. Because what we see, for, for example, in the Gospel of Luke, is that, you know, really there were quite a few people who were not paying attention, but there were some who were. There were some folks back then who were really alert to what God was doing, and it made all the difference for them. You see, the Jews were looking for a Messiah. They were waiting for a Messiah. They wanted this Savior to come, and they expected him to save them from their shame, from their servitude to the Roman Empire, and from their own sin. They were looking for a Redeemer. In the Old Testament, we can read about God's judgment on his bride Israel in both the prophetic and the historical books. And God used these two massive empires to bring his judgment on Israel. If you know your history, the kingdom of Israel was divided into a northern and a southern kingdom. And in, the, and in these different kingdoms, 
They were each overtaken by two different empires, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And God used them to pronounce his judgment on Israel because Israel had abandoned their God and had abandoned their covenant with him. They had been disobedient. God spoke of Israel as his bride, and his bride had committed adultery against him. His bride had abandoned him, had left and gone away. And so these painful consequences that God brought from, from Assyria, from Babylon, these were the result of generations of Israel's rejection of God's love and of his law. And so over time, God sent messages to Israel. He, he sent his prophets. We read about them in the Old Testament. His prophets warning Israel, turn back to the Lord. Turn back from your sinful ways. Abandon your foreign gods and turn back to the one true God. And over and over again, there might be a short-lived moment of repentance, but eventually the nation would turn back to idolatry, would turn back to rejecting the covenant that God had made with them. And so God brings this judgment. Now, he sends them into foreign lands. You might know the stories of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who go into Babylon and they're put into servitude. You may know these famous verses in, in, in uh, Jeremiah, you know, Seek the peace of the city you're in. You know, plant, plant uh, gardens, marry your sons and daughters, and, and await the return to Israel. And God said, look, you can return to Israel. You just need to do one thing. Repent. You repent, you come back. And so in time, the people did turn back to God. And many were able to return to Israel. Though the nation was just a shell of its former self. If you know the stories and Ezra and Nehemiah of coming back and rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple of God, just a fraction of its former glory. But this new temple was built, and the people of God seemed to have some level of autonomy and freedom and peace in the land, for a time at least. You see, even as the Old Testament is ending, in the last book of the Old Testament, we have the book of Malachi, where Malachi is warning the priests and the people against offering or sacrifices to God, or, or withholding sacrifices altogether. He says, you're stealing from God. He says, don't turn from the Lord again. Do you, you remember what happened? And even in other prophetic books like Haggai, where God says, you know, uh, the time has not yet happened where you are obedient to me. It's not yet here. The peace is coming. A restoration is coming. In fact, the song that we sang this morning uh, for our Advent reading was by uh, Charles Wesley, and he took that song directly from a line in Haggai 7 where uh, the desire of every nation would be gifted by God to the world, that the world was waiting for a Savior. And so this kind of uh, pregnant moment in Israel, it was, it was real. People were watching, but they weren't necessarily watching for the right thing. As it turns out, after the end of the Old Testament, Israel goes back into captivity uh, you guys have probably heard of Alexander the Great. He conquers Israel. Uh, this is in 332 B.C. And up until 165 B.C., they're ruled by these Grecian kings. Until finally, there's this revolt against foreign rule. And the Maccabeans uh, rebel against their king, the Seleucian king in, uh, from Syria, who's a Greek-speaking king of Syria. And they regained control of the temple because this king had been sacrificing pigs on the altar. 
which as you know is an abomination for the Jews. And so they, they win back control of the temple and they light the lampstand. This is the lampstand that's supposed to burn day and night before the Lord. It's never supposed to go out. But all of the oil in the temple had been defiled except for one jar and it was enough to light the lamp for one day. And in a miracle of miracles, while they were going through the process of creating new oil, the lamp burned for eight days. And this is where we get the holiday of Hanukkah, where the, the Jews are celebrating the remembrance of, of recapturing the temple from foreign oppressors who were, who were uh, truly just defiling the temple and restoring it to order and restoring worship in Israel. And they ruled over Israel for quite a few years until finally the Romans came. The Romans came, they defeated Syria, they defeated all of Judea, and they made Judea one of their provinces, and they put kings over Israel. And by the time Jesus is born, King Herod is in charge of, of this province and in charge of the whole nation of Israel. And so, again, you can understand why people would be looking so intently for a Messiah, for a Savior. The problem is, they were looking for someone who would usher in this reign of power and might and authority on earth, kick out the Roman government, restore peace to the land, restore faithfulness to the people. And they expected someone who looked like David, a mighty warrior who would slay thousands and tens of thousands. But instead, they got Jesus. Now, Jesus is a son of David, but he was born in humble circumstances. He was born to obscure parents. And he was born with a problematic sequence, if you will. Of course, you know the story Mary wasn't married. <laughs> so people didn't know who Jesus' father was. She was engaged to Joseph, but Joseph didn't marry her until after Jesus was born. And so people didn't know who his real father was, and they didn't know... You know, he was kind of born under this, uh, this veil of, of questions and, and scorn. And you know, how, you know how people can be, right? And imagine um, being a faith, you know, person of faith and, and you have this child out of wedlock. And what are you going to do? Are you going to say, no, 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 it was the Holy Spirit. And no one's going to believe that, right? And so this is how Jesus enters into the world. But there were some people who were paying attention to what God was doing. So in Luke chapter 2, we get not only the story of Jesus' birth, uh, but we get this story of a group of shepherds who were out in the field. In verse 8 of chapter 2 in Luke, it says, There were shepherds living out in the field nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. And the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, which is Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And then this whole host of angels appears around them and just explodes into song. Can you imagine being out there at night and the angels appear and they're singing and declaring that a Savior is born? You'd have to be blind, deaf, and all sorts of other things to not pay attention to that message, right? So that one's pretty easy. 
So what do they do? They go, they run to Bethlehem. They, they're, they're just totally dumbfounded, and they're looking for this baby. And you guys know the story. Uh, uh, Mary and Joseph, they couldn't find room in the houses. And, you know, in our, in our nativities, it's often an inn, like they're knocking on these inns. There weren't hotels in Bethlehem back then. They would be staying with family or extended family or friends. No one has room because everyone's in town for the census. And so they end up going to the stable. And Jesus is born in the stable. And so he's, lay, he's laying down. We call it a manger, but it's a food trough. He's laid down in the food trough. Right? They put some hay in there, potentially. They wrap him in swaddling clothes and lay him in this manger. And that's where the shepherds find him. And so they're overjoyed. You know, they, they, uh, they tell everyone they can about what the angels had said and about the child that was born in Bethlehem. And what we're told is that Mary treasured what was said and pondered it in her heart. So like the shepherds, she was paying attention and taking note of what God was doing. Forty days later, Mary and Joseph go up to Jerusalem. This is the time of the woman's purification. So in the Jewish law, uh, after 40 days of birth of a male, the woman goes to the temple. She uh, gives a sacrifice, and then she's ritually cleansed after her birth. And then also, in Israel, the firstborn son you make a sacrifice for. Because during the Exodus, do you remember when God killed the firstborn male of every person and every animal in Egypt? And the Israelites put the blood of a lamb over their doorpost, and the angel of death passed over, and didn't kill the firstborn uh, sons of the Israelites, and didn't kill the firstborn males of their animals, because they, they were passed over, right? And so God said in remembrance of this, every one of your firstborn belong, males belongs to me, whether animal or human. I, they're mine. They belong to me. And if you want to redeem them, you must make a sacrifice. Now, of course, G, you know, God and Jesus, that's more true than anyone could have possibly imagined. Jesus was God's own son. But instead of the people making a sacrifice to redeem Jesus, Jesus would be the one making a sacrifice to redeem the people. So for 1,400 years, God had been preparing his people to see what Jesus would later do. They just needed to pay attention. We read at the temple, when they go to the temple and they do the purification rites and they present Jesus for, for this dedication and they, they offer the appropriate sacrifices to, to redeem their firstborn son, that they're met by two people. The first is Simeon. Simeon. Simeon is a holy and devout man, and he spends a lot of his time in the temple. And, it, and Luke tells us that Simeon had been waiting for the consolation of Israel, and that God, by the Holy Spirit, had told him that he wouldn't die until he saw the promised Messiah, the one who would come to restore Israel. And so Simeon's in the temple courts, and we're not sure how he knows, but somehow the Holy Spirit, the, God alerts him that the one he's been looking for is here. The Messiah is in the temple. And he looks and he sees Jesus. And he comes up to Mary and Joseph and he says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. 
Simeon was paying attention. And when God spoke to him, he knew what to do. He was ready. (coughs) And right there in those words, for anyone else paying attention, we get the message that Jesus would save God's people, that he would be a revelation for those outside of God's covenant promises, the Gentiles, that all the nations would be enlightened by the Messiah. You know, it's that he who has ears to hear, let him listen. It's that kind of thing, that kind of moment, pregnant with truth and power for anyone who's willing to pay attention. And then after Simeon, there's this woman, Anna. And Anna begins to prophesy over Jesus. Unfortunately, we don't know what she said. There's no record of her prophecy. But this is a woman who literally waited in the temple grounds all day, every day, fasting and praying. And it says in the scripture that she was married to her husband, I think it was seven years, and then she lived as a widow until she was, was it 80? I'm trying to find the, the 84. So if women typically got married in their mid to late teens, and she was married for seven years, and then she's 84, she could potentially have been in the temple grounds for about 60 years, fasting and praying. 60 years watching and waiting. 60 years of paying attention to what God was doing. Don't we get, don't we often lose our patience after about 10 minutes of waiting? Some of us don't make it two minutes waiting to hear from the Lord. 60 years. And, you know, I doubt this is the only thing that happened in 60 years. My hunch is she saw God doing a number of things in that time. That she was alert to the move of the Spirit in numerous ways. Because this is just how it goes. When you're that kind of person, the more you look, the more you see. But she waited and she waited. And then, I imagine to her great delight, she hears, either hears Simeon's prophecy or the Spirit directs her himself to Jesus. And she begins to prophesy and say all these incredible things. And, you know, when, when she begins to prophesy, it says that um, sorry, she, she spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. She was speaking to the crowds. To everyone who was paying attention, she spoke. But here's the question. How many of those people that day were not looking for the redemption of Israel? How many of those people were not paying attention? How many people in the town of Bethlehem, when the, when the shepherds came running in, potentially in the middle of the night, to tell about angels out in the fields, they just shut their windows and locked their doors, if they had windows, and do, I don't know how it was, but metaphorically at least. They didn't want to hear. They weren't alert. They weren't paying attention to what God was doing. You know, in the book of Matthew, we read about that final group of visitors, the Magi, the kings. Were there three of them? We don't know, but they had three gifts, and they traveled from the east. How far? We don't know. Just somewhere east. I guess no further than the end of the continent of Asia. But they traveled because they saw something in the stars. 
They saw something in the stars, and they understood what they saw so well that they decided to set off on a journey. And we don't know how long their journey took, but it could have taken up to two years. They, did not, they were not hanging out with the shepherds the night Jesus was born. Uh, in fact, when they finally find Mary and Joseph, they're living in a house. So presumably they've kind of established their home in Bethlehem. And, and these wealthy kings, magi, magicians, we don't know what they are, sorcerers, pagans for sure, and yet somehow they know how to see, read the stars to see the coming Messiah into the world. It's really fascinating. They were alert. They were paying attention. And they come all the way to Jerusalem. They talk to King Herod. They say, hey, we're looking for a child who's going to be king of the Jews. Where would we find someone like that? And Herod consults the, the prophecies and says, well, the, the town of David. The town of David is where the, the descendant of David who is coming will be born. And they go off and present their gifts to Jesus. Of course, Herod's trying to kill Jesus, so he kills all the boys under the age of two because he finds out when they saw the star. But these, these wise men, these magi, these kings, they brought these gifts across hundreds, potentially thousands of miles because they saw something in the stars. You know, as Howard was reading it in the book of Mark, he was reading about Jesus warning us to be alert to his second coming. He tells us the signs to look for regarding his return. These cataclysmic markers. He says, the sun will go dark, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky. And my hunch is this is somewhat metaphorical. If you imagine a star falling from the sky, the stars are bigger than the earth, right? They're big they're suns, right? So some kind of metaphorical claim going on, but it's so big and so dramatic, you almost have to think, Jesus, why do you even need to tell us to stay alert and to keep our eyes open and not fall asleep if stars are falling from the sky? I mean, how can we miss it? Are you, are you serious? You've got to give us a warning. Uh, you know, some of the things that we read about in the Bible about the end of times, they're so dramatic. Why, did, why are they accompanied with warnings to stay alert? Well, I think the answer is pretty simple. Even the most dramatic signs can be missed. Even clear teachings can be misunderstood. And even the most astute people can stop paying attention. Seeing these things isn't easy. I read a, an article in The Atlantic uh, about athletes at the University of California in Riverside and, they're, and they've been training themselves to see better do you know you can train yourself to see better and of course the thing is they, um, they, don't, they don't train their eyes because eye, you can't make your eyes see better what they do is they train their brains to better interpret what their eyes are seeing isn't that interesting and the results of the study is that they were able to improve their visual acuity. These are baseball players. They were able to improve their visual acuity by 30%. And seven players on the team were able to, to achieve 27.5 vision, which means they could see at 20 feet what most of us can see at 7.5 feet because they trained their brain to interpret better the things their eye was seeing. 
They improved their batting averages. They reduced the number of strikeouts they had. They increased, increased their on-base percentage. And they scored a total of 41 excess runs, and they won five more games than what was expected of them based on their previous experience. So it's like real improvements. But again, they didn't train their eyes. Basically what they were doing is they were training themselves to pay attention better to what their eyes were receiving. And I think there's a message in there for us. The problem isn't that we don't see the signs. Right? The problem is not that the signs weren't visible or that they couldn't be heard or that people weren't aware of them. The problem is, what do you do with the signal that's sent to your brain? How do you respond to it? How do you fit it into your understanding of reality? The problem is that we don't recognize what God's doing, not because we can't see it, but because we're not really paying attention. And so we need to practice. We need to practice paying attention right now for what God is doing in small ways, but also so that we'll be alert when he does the big things that are coming. The reason Jesus says that it's like a, like a thief coming in the night and you have to stay alert and stay up and kind of burn the midnight oil and keep your eyes open and stay alert is it's because when it happens, if you're already asleep spiritually, if you're already asleep uh, emotionally, if you're already asleep relationally, if you're already asleep mentally, then it will come and go and you'll never notice it. Jesus says this about the sun going dark, the moon having no light, and stars falling from the sky. He says, if you're asleep, you'll miss it. That's, an, that's a really stark warning. It's actually hard to believe. But look, the, the Jews read about the suffering servant in Isaiah but they could only comprehend a mighty warrior for a Messiah. King Herod knew that the Messiah was coming from Bethlehem, the one who would save even King Herod, but he tried to kill him by killing every baby under the age of two in Bethlehem. The Pharisees knew from the prophecies what miracles to look for in the Messiah. The Messiah would do miracles of, of uh, healing, miracles of of casting out demons, miracles of raising people from the dead, miracles for food. I mean, all of these things that they were expecting. And yet when Jesus performed every single one of those miracles, they rejected him. The disciples heard Jesus say it with his own mouth that he would die and be raised on the third day. And then when he died, they lost all hope and they thought that, that their expectations for the coming kingdom were ruined. They all missed the signs that were staring them right in the face. So don't think, oh, when Jesus comes back, it'll be obvious and I'll know it. Jesus is warning us that when he comes back, we may not know it. That when he returns, that we may not be paying attention. So the question is, are we? Are we, are we paying attention? Are you paying attention? Remember Henry Blackaby says that we should pay attention to what God is doing in the world and then join him. In his book, Experiencing God, he says, look, you don't have to figure it all out. Just see what God is doing. Don't, don't start your own program and ask God to bless it. See what God's blessing and join his program. Right? It's just a little simple twist. 
that it requires us to pay attention. So the question is, do you see God at work in the world today? Can you see where God is moving? Can you see where God is active? Do you see him at work in the poor and the downtrodden who need food, shelter, a friendly smile from someone who cares about them? Do you see God at work in your children when they disobey, but they need a parent who loves them unconditionally? Do you see God at work in a sibling who makes another bad decision, maybe the thousandth bad decision, but they need correction born out of love, not anger, to see what they've done wrong? Do you see God at work in your jobs? Do you see God at work in your boss? Do you see God's hand in your small groups? in your interaction with other believers, whether in your home or those not in your home? Are you seeing how God is working in them and what God is inviting you to join in those moments? It could be something as simple as somebody needing a ministry of care today. You know, I know it's hard. Uh, It's hard to read faces when everyone's wearing a mask. So maybe you don't know who's hurting today just by looking around. But are you trying? Are you asking the Lord to direct you? Are you listening to what he says, to what the people around you say? Maybe somebody needs an encouragement today. Maybe someone here, maybe someone at home when you get home or when you're out today. It's just a simple prayer that's needed. Where is your service required today, tomorrow, and the day after that? We know by paying attention Because not every need will be spoken to us. We have to be alert and aware of what's going on around us. Let me ask you, which of your lost friends is ready to hear about Jesus? If only we're paying attention enough to notice the shifts in the way they talk about spiritual things. What co-worker is in need of hope if only someone cared to listen and find out? What family member has gained an appreciation for eternal things after facing a life-altering pandemic and maybe has even lost a loved one? Or simply they just have a hole in that anti-God armor that they've been building up over the years because the Holy Spirit's been wearing them down for the last eight months, stripping away the things that they thought would protect them. And now there's a chink in that anti-God armor just waiting for that message to be slipped in. You know, the reality is God is at work. God is always at work. There's nowhere in the world that he isn't already active. So there's nowhere you can be in your home, quarantined, at work, school, on a Zoom call, out in in the park doing grocery shopping. There's nowhere you can go that God is not doing something. And we just need to pay attention. We just need to have eyes to see. We need to have that 27 and a half vision where we can see from a distance what most people can only see up close. Not because our eyes are better, but because we're focused more on what God is doing. You know, I fall into this trap all the time. If you don't put it right in front of my face, (laughs) I don't see it. I'm one of those guys that goes to the grocery store and I can't find the thing that's in the middle of the shelf or opens the refrigerator and I can't find the things that are in front. You know, I'm one of those guys, you know. It's so hard sometimes. 
And I have to learn to train myself to pay attention. I need to be a radical attention payer. I need to be an expert attention payer. So don't just look for the big stuff. Look for the little things. Look at the cracks in your world. Look in the shadows. Look in the simple places of joy and the difficult places of pain. You'll find God at work. Pay attention. Notice. Stay alert. Watch for the signs of God around you, like the fig tree whose leaves are budding and you now look for summer to arrive. And when we pay attention to the past, the coming of Jesus, to the present, what God's doing now, and to the future, when Jesus returns, as we pay attention, then we'll be like those Jesus described who keep watch at all hours. We won't be like the ones who fell asleep in the night and the robber came in and, st- and stole. We'll be like the ones who are alert and awake. Or when the master comes home and we're ready, everything's ready for his arrival because we've stayed up and we've been on watch. We'll be ready for whatever God brings our way. And God's bringing stuff your way all the time and we just miss it and we're not ready for it. But as we learn to pay attention, we'll be ready for what God brings. We'll be able to respond in faith and heed the call of God. And that is basically what growing as a disciple is all about. Paying attention to God seeing the opportunity and responding in faith. And when you do that, you respond in faith, you'll see what God does and it'll make you want to look even harder to do it again because it's such an incredible joy when God gives you an opportunity and you take it and God empowers you to do something there in that moment that you often never thought was possible. We could even say, if we wanted to use an identity statement, it is like us to be radical attention payers who see what God is doing in and around us because God is always active. It is like us to be radical attention payers who see what God is doing in and around us because God is always active. And my prayer is that this would be true of us today. So can I pray for you? Lord, there's no shortage of your activity in this world but there's a great shortage of those who notice. God, we pray today that that identity statement would indeed be true of of us. And we know that in the spirit, in the heavenly realms, it is true of us because this is what you've made us to be. In our truest selves, we are alert to what you're doing. We are sheep who know the shepherd's voice. We are people who care about others and care about you and care about what you're doing. And so, Lord, where we fall short of that expectation and opportunity, Lord, we pray for your gentle or maybe more direct reminder that we're made for something more than just going through life unawares. We're made for more than simply um, uh, giving up because we don't see it unless it's right in front of our face. So, Lord, give us tender hearts and improve the, the acuity of our spiritual eyes. Lord, I'm just thinking of that, that baseball team. I would love to see this year for myself 41 more runs scored and five more wins in the game of life because I've been paying attention to what you're doing. That would be so much fun. It would be so exciting, and it would be so rewarding and fulfilling. 
God, help us to see those improvements. Help us to practice every day paying attention to you and what you're doing. And Lord, let this season be a time of reminding and, and challenging us to step into this radical attention paying in a new way. And that you would be glorified as a result. And that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.